Father God, we praise You. We praise You this morning as we gather to celebrate as we do every week the resurrection of Your Son. We praise You as we gather to celebrate the birth of Your Son. Lord, help us to marvel now at the mystery and the gift that is the incarnation, the enfleshment of Your eternal, uncreated, begotten Son, His taking on of flesh, becoming a man, out of love for us. Lord, thank You for the help that He gives us. Thank You for the help You've already given us through Him this morning as we've sung praises, as we've prayed, as we've heard the inspired Word read. Lord, set our minds on the incarnate Word, Your Son now. Help us to see Him clearly in Your Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. What, what does that phrase bring to mind when you hear that? When you hear that starting maybe back after Thanksgiving, what starts coming to your mind? Do you think of giving and getting presents? Maybe a Christmas tree and a full stocking? Are you very festive? Did your wife have to stop you from wearing all red and green this morning like my wife had to? Do you think of colder, shorter days? Maybe evenings inside under a blanket, watching a Christmas movie, maybe around a fire if you're not in Texas, maybe around a fire this year. Maybe you think of college football games, breaks from school, good food. For many of us, we can't think of Christmas time without thinking of family. And for many, that might bring pain from losing those you once spent Christmases with. For others, it brings loneliness and longing for someone, anyone to spend Christmas with. Maybe you think of Christmas Eve services, joy to the world, peace on earth. It's a nostalgic time. It's a hopeful time. But I wonder if you think of it as a time as a season of help. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born into an earthly family in order to come to the aid of, to help His heavenly family, His people, His church. But more simply, Jesus was born to help. Jesus was born to help. Our passage this morning in Hebrews is answering this question, why did Jesus come to earth as he did? It's probably, it's helping these early Jewish Christians who were turning from their culture, from their friends and family. It's helping them answer the question, is this really how God is showing up? As a baby in a manger? As a man who would hang from the cross? And the passage is answering, it is, and he did so to help. Why did the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity, stoop so low as to take on human flesh and a human nature? Why does the one who made and uphold the universe show up even while still upholding the universe as a baby boy? Is this 
really how God's going to show up to help His people? In the past, God had appeared in great signs and wonders. He came as an angel of death sweeping over Egypt, as a pillar of fire, as a burning bush, as the one who divides the sea, as the one who floods the earth, as the one thundering from atop a mountain. And then this, this is how he appears after hundreds of years of waiting for a Messiah, hundreds of years of wondering how are these prophecies about the Messiah going to be fulfilled. Is this really what Israel was waiting for? A baby in a manger? A carpenter? A man? A man hanging on a cross? This is folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. What is it to you? Is this really where you'll go for help? This Jesus, humble in the manger as a baby boy, as a man standing before Pilate in a crowd, in a blood-soaked purple robe with spit on his face, is this where you'll go for help? When the fear of death is crippling, when your sin becomes overwhelming, when family and friends leave you, either by abandoning you or passing, when responsibilities pile up and loneliness presses in, will you really find help here in Jesus? Will you say with Peter in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We must. We must say that with Peter. We must go to Jesus, and Hebrews tells us why. Jesus takes on humanity in order to help. Jesus becomes a humble babe, a lowly carpenter, and finally a bleeding, suffocating man on a cross in order to help his people in a greater way even than those miraculous and marvelous signs Israel had seen before. Jesus helps by taking on flesh. Jesus helps by dying. And Jesus helps by suffering. Those are the three things we'll see in the passage this morning. Jesus helps by taking on flesh, he helps by dying, and he helps by suffering. First, Jesus helps by taking on flesh. Look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The children share in flesh and blood. As creatures, we don't have a choice. We're born into the human race with human qualities and a human nature. We share in the flesh and blood. But Jesus willingly partook. He wasn't essentially man. He was not essentially man. He was forever essentially God. And he became man. He willingly, in a moment in time, took on humanity, partook of flesh and blood. And that's the mystery We celebrate each Christmas the eternal Son of God becoming man. Hebrews has already said in the book, in the very beginning of the book, that Jesus is the Son of God. God's Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, that is Jesus, 
upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or as John 1 puts it, as Colette read this morning, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. To exist before creation, and actually to create, are attributes of God, not of man. The Bible's clear. The one who was born to Mary in Bethlehem is the eternal God. But this eternal God humbles Himself by becoming man. The Creator becomes like His creatures. The Creator becomes like His creatures in every way. You see that in verse 17. Look in verse 17. It says, in every way. A few chapters later in 4.15, we get clarifications that it means in every way except sin, accepting sin. The Creator becomes a man. This isn't a cute publicity stunt. It's not like a celebrity driving around with a police officer for a day or working at a soup kitchen so you can take some pictures and see how nice he is. There was real purpose in the enfleshment or incarnation. Jesus, it says in the beginning of verse 17, had to be made like mankind. Jesus had to be made like his people in order that he could represent his people. He had to be made like him. He had to represent them as one of them, as one of us, because he was constrained by his own love for us. The triune God willingly and necessarily took this action out of love. You see, mankind had fallen. We'd fallen in rebellion against our God, against our Creator. We sinned against our good and loving Creator, Adam, our first representative, sinned, disobeyed, broke God's law, and fell. And we all with him co-sign. As we're born in sin, we continue in sin, we co-sign his initial rebellion. And our sin, our breaking God's law, earns us separation from God, earns us misery and death, eternal death. That's the state of all people apart from Christ. This passage tells us that we're under the power of the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And we, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. These are the results of our rebellion against God. But Jesus came and took on flesh so that we might be brought out from under Adam, out from under that curse. The fourth verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we didn't sing is, Adam's image now deface. Christ comes, becomes a man, so that we have, unlike Adam representing us, a sinless man representing us. We need someone who is like us in all ways, so Jesus in love becomes like us in all ways, but without sin. Look at what love motivates this action. Jesus takes on flesh, he humbles himself to an ordinary life. He does so in love, not in disgust. Look back before our passage in verse 12. Look in verse 12. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
When was the last time you were embarrassed to be seen around someone? Maybe you were embarrassed to be seen by your parents, dropped off by them at school. Maybe you were at a movie and you didn't want to see people with, had, that you had your twilight shirt on, and so you still see someone that knows you in the movie, so you go change real quick. But Jesus isn't like that. He's not ashamed. He's not begrudgingly taking on flesh, kind of, I guess I'll slip into flesh for a time. He's doing it joyfully in love. He's not ashamed to be seen among his family. See all the family language that's used in the passage? We're called brothers, children, even the offspring of Abraham. Jesus takes on flesh for his family, for those he's loved from before the foundation of the earth. Not because of anything worthy in us. Actually, despite all our unworthiness, Jesus loves his family. He becomes a man, as Romans 8 says, to become the firstborn among many brothers. Many. Numerous brothers, family, brothers and sisters, counting them as close as kin. The Bible can't use closer, more loving language. Well, who is Jesus' family? Jesus and Paul both help us answer that question. Jesus says in Matthew 12, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And look at verse 16 back in Hebrews 2. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That word help in the original language might be better thought of as savingly taking hold of, taking by the hand and saving. Who in this verse is Jesus helping? Not all creation. He's not savingly taking hold of angels. Not even all men. Only the offspring of Abraham. And Paul helps us know who that is in Galatians 3 by saying, it's those of faith who are the offspring of Abraham. It's those of faith. Jesus' disciples, those who have repented and trusted in Christ, who Jesus savingly takes hold of. If you aren't a Christian, consider this Christmas that an offer of help is being held out to you. Although you don't deserve it, although you, like each one of us, has actually done everything in your power to resist and run away from God's grace, God's grace is offered to you this morning. Reconciliation with God, with your God, entrance into His family, adoption through His firstborn Son. Help is being offered to you this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ, the perfect image of the Father, the righteous representative we need, who stands before the Father as perfect, the true God-man.
But we actually need more than just Jesus' goodness, than just His righteousness. We also need Him to remove our badness, to remove our sin. And that's the second great way Jesus helps us. He dies. The second great way Jesus helps us is by dying. Our representative not only has to stand before the Father as a sinless man, he must also stand before the Father as a sacrifice. We owe God a debt. As sinners, we've broken God's law. And the wages of sin, what is justly deserved, is death. And God's a just God. But the good news of the gospel is that God will accept a substitute. And Christ voluntarily went to the cross as a substitute for His people, for His family, who He loved. That's what this passage means in verse 17, where it says He became a high priest, and then uses a word we don't often use, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Our sin justly deserves the wrath of God, but in love, Christ took that wrath upon Himself on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath. He took away guilt. That's what it means to be a propitiation. This is the reason Jesus was born. Jesus was born, you could say, to die. He had to become man, truly man, to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God. He had to offer like for like, perfect human nature in place of sinful human nature. What's the result of that death? Look in verse 14 and 15. We see two results, two verbs that are a result of Jesus' one death. Through death, it says, Christ destroyed, really that you can think of it as meaning disarmed, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and two, delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In one fell swoop, in one great act of mercy and justice, Christ disarms the devil and frees those enslaved by his power. The devil's great power is to accuse us in the courtroom of God, to point to us, start reading out our list of sins in front of God and say, see, he deserves death. She deserves hell. But if Christ comes and pays for our sins, pays for every last one of them, then that list and the one reading it becomes powerless. So Christ, by paying our debt, by bearing the wrath of God that was supposed to fall on us as a substitute, He disarms the devil. His rage, the devil's, we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. This is the only way, friends, to escape the fear of death. The only way to rightly escape the fear and the reality of death itself is through Christ. We as humans tend to look for other solutions. And we often grab the nearest one we can find. Because the fear of death is a miserable place to be. So we grasp for anything that will try and remove it. The passage comp compares the fear of death to slavery. It's not pleasant. 
But grasping onto anything but Christ is like taking hold of one of those paper link chains that the preschoolers make down the hall. How are you solving your fear of death? Are you distracting yourself from it? Are you preoccupying your mind with social media, entertainment, work, politics, responsibilities, good responsibilities even? Taking your eyes off the reality of death won't solve anything. It's like drinking to forget your problems. They'll still be there the next day, only with a hangover. Or maybe you're grabbing hold of your own goodness. Are you trying to take away the fear of death and judgment by saying to yourself, I won't really mind standing before the judge. I think he'll find me to be a pretty good person. That didn't work out too well for the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus thinking that. He's a pretty good person. Jesus quickly shows him his idolatry. We've all sinned, so none of us have any inherent righteousness to appeal of. And when we look at the law of God, we're quickly removed from any thoughts that we are a good person. Maybe you're hoping in a false philosophy that simply redefines death. Whether you think we'll die and all enter into one big pool of consciousness, or whether you think there's no consciousness after death at all, that everything will just go black, Neither of those ideas lines up with a biblical understanding of death. That's not what God, the author of life, says that death is. You can climb into your Toyota Corolla and call it a Tesla, but it's still a Toyota. And redefining death won't take away its sting, and it won't take away your fear of it. But if you're trusting in Christ, if you're clinging to Him, then He's freed you from the fear of death. Christian, your debt is paid. No wrath remains. That great enemy has been destroyed, totally disarmed. You've been freed. That means no more sleepless nights, wondering when it's going to come for you. No more trying to earn God's approval. So maybe, just maybe, He'll let you into heaven. It also means no more worrying about lesser problems. Christian, your great problem has been dealt with. This is why our answer to the Jews and the Greeks, to the scientists, authors, politicians, philosophers, college professors, your aunt, your parents, whoever, our answer to anyone who scoffs at us for looking to help from God, who reveals himself in the weakness of a manger and a cross, our answer to those people is, where else should we look? Where else can we go? Where will we find help from the great problem we all face, death, except in the one who died to defeat death? Jesus helps us with our greatest problem. And that should put all our other problems in perspective. Jeremiah Burroughs says that a Christian who's bogged down by lesser problems is like a young prince who loses or breaks a toy and his whole day is just ruined. That young prince isn't realizing how much privilege he has being the son of a king and how much power that his father, the king, really has. 
That's not to say that the Lord doesn't care about your present state. It's not saying that the Lord only cares about your future, your eternity. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care how many toys you break or how many of your toys break you. He actually cares deeply about his brothers and sisters here and now. If he's taking great pains to secure your eternity, he'll surely care about your journey there. Jesus ever lives to help us, to help us in our temptation, and to help us onward in our holiness. The last way Jesus helps us is by suffering. The last way Jesus helps us is by his suffering. Jesus suffered for us and with us, experiencing all that we as humans experience. Jesus suffered in his temptations and trials. He was human. He endured all the hard aspects of life that we do as limited creatures. He got hungry. He got cold and tired. But he also suffered trials from Satan and persecution from his enemies. His whole life, and especially his last three years of ministry, and even more especially, his last few days leading to his death on the cross, can be described as suffering trials or temptations. He is the man of sorrows, after all. But having prevailed over all these temptations, every trial, as a man, he now serves us as a merciful high priest. He's a merciful and a faithful high priest. Not that he wasn't merciful before. He's God. And God describes himself in the Old Testament as the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is merciful. He's perfectly, unchangingly, fully merciful. It's who He is. It's who He's always been and always will be. But by taking on our nature and experiencing all the trials we might face, Christ has taken away any excuse that we would have of thinking of God as a distant or uncaring God. As God, He's aware of and gracious toward our sins and our afflictions. As man, He's moved with compassion. He's filled with sorrow over every burden of every believer. And as the God-man, we go to Him and we find sympathy. Sympathy from the one who's suffered for and with us, who's suffered far more than we have and overcome. Christ and Christ alone has endured the full brunt of temptation. We've all given in at one point or another, but Christ alone has endured all that you have and more and still has overcome. That means He's qualified to help. And Christian, this is how Christ offers you help today. Not only are your sins paid for, not only have you been freed from the fear of death, not only is Christ interceding on your behalf as a substitute, as a sacrifice, but Christ still comes to your aid. Christ gives help to you in your temptations. He's not like a dad who buys you a car, but then puts you on the hook for the gas and the insurance. No, he's near to you in all of your trials. Christian, what Christ is here to help you through are your temptations. 
the trials that tempt you to sin. Christ is most concerned, Christian, with your holiness. And so we ought to be most concerned with our holiness. You see, man's great problem is sin and death and separation from God. The believer's great problem is ongoing temptation. Christ took on flesh, suffered and died so that you might be holy. And He rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand to offer you help as a merciful high priest. The incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the current work of Christ, it's a great mystery. Herman Bobbing says that though it's a mystery, the incarnation is not a problem which we must solve or can solve, but a wonderful fact, rather, which we gratefully confess in such a way as God Himself presents it to us in His Word. But it's not just something to observe. It's not just something to know. It's not just something to nod approvingly at this morning. It's something that changes us, something that changes you. Christ's ongoing work is to help us change, to be holy, to look more and more like Him. He became like us so that we might become more like Him. Well, in what practical ways is Christ helping us, even this morning? One is by His providence. The one who created the world, we saw that in Hebrews 1, still runs the world. The Christ who loves you so much that He suffered and died for you is the ruler over all the world. So in your temptations, He's ruler over them. In your trials, He's ruler over them. In all your affliction and suffering, Christ is there in them as Lord of all, using it to make us holy, more devoted to God. John Payton, a missionary to the island uh, of Vanuatu, the, uh, an island of cannibals, writing about his time when he was surrounded by enemies, literally other humans wanting to kill and eat him, said, life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abide in my soul. What a help it is to know that nothing happens to you outside the loving providence of the Christ who died for you. Christ helps by His providence. He helps us in our temptations by His Word. The incarnate Word of God still speaks to us through the inspired Word of God, through our Bibles. God's Word is sufficient for a life in godliness. That means we have what we need in God's Word to be equipped to endure trials, to face temptations, to know what is good and right and holy. Christ hasn't left us in the dark to try and figure things out on our own. So read your Bible. Make it the first thing you do in the morning. Come to church and hear the Word preached, hear it expounded, hear it applied to your life. Make it the first thing you do each week. Christ also helps us through His church. Christ is the head. The church is His body. Yes, the local church. This local church is the body of Christ. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, writing to a local church at Corinth, says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and Christ cares for his, his body. He identifies with his body. When Christ stops Paul on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He is with his church. His church is his body. And he's given himself through the church as a help to us. Christ helps us through one another. Through gathering, not only to hear preaching, but also to sing and pray for one another. When we sing, uh, His rage we can't endure, for lo, His doom is sure. That's not just Martin Luther telling us that. We're singing that to one another. We're reminding one another of that fact. He's also given us to disciple and counsel one another, to address our concerns, our problems, our afflictions, our temptations in very specific ways, applying the gospel to each of our lives individually through the ministry of one another. So commit to the regular gathering each Sunday. Commit to discipling one another, pointing one another to Christ in individual ways. We've agreed to do so in our covenant. The last practical way Christ is helping us now, today, is by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of, His Son, of the Son. It's called the Spirit of Christ. Jesus Himself calls the Spirit the Helper in John. The Spirit of Christ raises us to life, unites us to Christ, bears witness in our hearts that we're His, and produces visible fruit of holiness throughout our lives. Christ has not left us without help, but He's very near to us in His providence, His Word, in His church, and in His Spirit. Each Christmas, we celebrate His initial act of drawing near to us, His incarnation. Each Christmas, we celebrate this season of help, the help that God's given us in the person of Christ. So for the rest of the day, as we look back on fond Christmas memories, look back further still to Calvary. As we enjoy comfort in this season, rest and warmth in sweaters and good food and time off, let it point you to comfort in Christ. And as we celebrate with family and friends, may this day point you to the family that we'll gather with for eternity, the one we're gathering with now. As we give and receive gifts, do so with joy, knowing that the great gift of grace has been given to us in Christ. With the help of Christ, enjoy all the aspects of this season on the bedrock of of help we have in His incarnation, His death, and His suffering for us. Let's pray. Father God, You are a helper. You have given us a great helper in Your Son, and by His Spirit we are helped daily, moment by moment. Continue to help us through the intercession of Your Son, through His death, through His cleansing of sin, through His disarming of the devil. 
Continue to help us through trials and temptations that we'll face today, this week, the coming months and years that are promised to us. Lord, thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for not being a distant God, but for being very near to us in Christ your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.